0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. He's covered the big events and talked to the biggest names in sports for more than three decades.
1: Three's end zone, he hit it! 500 career touchdown passes! From Super Bowls to the World Series, he's been there, he'll be there, and he's here
0: now for CMI, the Chris Myers interview.
1: Nice to have you listening, and when you talk about dynasties in sports, were those a lot of them through baseball, basketball, or we just saw what the Lakers did, and the Patriots have been doing it in the NFL, so it's a good time to have somebody on to talk about the dynasty because in the eyes of some, they feel like the Patriots dynasty is coming to an end with Tom Brady no longer there, Cam Newton at the moment, uh, with the Patriots, and and, uh, let's just say it's early, but not A winning record for Bill Belichick is unusual almost at any point of the season. So let's welcome in Jeff Benedict, who has written a number of books, an author. He's covered sports, uh, but his latest book is about the Patriots, and it is called The Dynasty. And we welcome him to a CMI, Chris Myers interview here. On podcast one, and, and Jeff, thanks for being with us. Uh, the picking of the Patriots dynasty—you could have written about any dynasty, even going back to the Ming dynasty—if you wanted. Uh, <laughs> uh, what, what, what uh, brought you uh, to this one in particular, and the timing of it?
0: Well, Chris, first, thanks for uh, having me on your great show. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity, and as far as being drawn to the Patriots, it was somewhat easy for me. I mean, this dynasty, I think, is distinguishable from. Uh, basically all the other ones, at least in the modern era, because of its longevity. Whether you want to compare it to other football dynasties, uh, the 49ers of the 80s and early 90s, the Steelers, perhaps of the 70s, or looking at the Chicago Bulls of the Michael Jordan era, none of those dynasties had the length uh, that the Patriots have. And, and what's so extraordinary about it is the fact that the three core um, men in this dynasty, who I identify as Robert Kraft, the owner, Bill Belichick, the coach, and Tom Brady, the quarterback, spending 20 years together is is like an eternity in professional football. And I think that the amount of winning that they did, particularly in an era where the NFL was hardwired for parity by introducing things like free agency and the salary cap, which which did not exist for any of the other previous football dynasties, That just makes what's happened in New England even more extraordinary.
1: And that's a great point. Uh, The salary cap that changes in the rules in the NFL so that uh, teams don't stay on top and and dominate – and I guess we could say, well, how, how did they do it? How have they done it? We've watched it. Others have tried to copy it. Some assistants have gone other places and not had anywhere near this success. But if you want to know how they did it, I guess you've got to read, read the book. Let me ask you about the access, though, that you got, because I, as a someone who with Fox covered the Patriots in a number of Super Bowls and was around them on the air, off the air, they are a very guarded organization, and so it has been difficult sometimes uh, to get access. So uh, maybe let the people listening in uh, know about your access and how you were able to get that and at least without compromising anything and, and obviously the information you gathered.
0: Sure. I, first of all, let me just say I, one of the things I admired about the organization was how closed they were um, or are. And I think there's a lot of wisdom actually in that Um I previously did, spent a year inside the Duke basketball program, and uh, Mike Krzyzewski very similarly keeps a very closed shop at Duke and has the entire time he's been there. I think that organizations and coaches and people who have that kind of button-up approach um, tend to be run better and managed better, and the Patriots are that. So uh, my approach with the Patriots was that I, I started by reaching out directly to the owner Robert Kraft. Um, and I really did it in a sort of an old fashioned way. I, I wrote him a letter uh, and introduced myself. I, I had never covered the Patriots organization uh, as a reporter and had never been in the press box or attended a press conference or certainly never been a beat writer. And so I was a, a stranger, an unknown commodity to them. And similarly, you know, I, I didn't know them. I didn't know. Tom Brady or Kraft or any of the the key players there but I I took the time to to try to build a rapport and a relationship particularly with the with the ownership and um, I thought it was important to do it that way Chris because when you think about it this is Robert Krafts team I mean he's the owner he's been there the longest he's built this organization from the ground up he was there even before obviously before Brady and Belichick arrived in 2000 and um, and, and the other thing that was interesting to me is over the years, there's been so much written about Brady and Belichick, rightfully so, but not really about craft. And so I really wanted to, to probe into that ownership part of the equation because I think it's the, it's the overlooked element of, of this dynasty. Uh, it's easy to see the role that the quarterback plays because he's always got the ball in his hands. And it's, it's easy to see the role that the coach plays because he's always wearing the headset and on the sidelines and in, in the key moments. But the owner is more invisible. And so that was sort of my entry point. But ultimately, obviously, I wanted to get to Belichick and Brady as well. And, and not just them, but other players, key players over the, the length of the run. So from one end, that's Drew Bledsoe, um, who was there when Kraft bought the team, was a rookie and, and following him through the, through the time of Ty Law and, and Willie McGinnis and all those great players, Teddy Bruski, Randy Moss, right up to Rob Gronkowski in, in the end. And uh, eventually I was able to get to all those players and, and interview them for their, for their perspective and their input because what I was trying to do here, Chris, is nobody really cares about my <laughs> perspective on this. What people really want to know is what's the story of the dynasty through the eyes and ears and minds of those who actually built it and then and then kept it going over these years. And so that was my approach as a as a writer.
1: Well, and I I've always been fascinated by owners, going back to some that I have spent time with, whether it be interviewing in a long format or just covering their teams. Going back to a George Steinbrenner, you have people today like Mark Cuban and. Jerry Jones, you can go back to DeBartolo, Eddie DeBartolo, the family. You mentioned their dynasty with the 49ers, and and I'm glad you started with the owner because that's who hires the coach, the GM, makes the decisions to keep those guys even when things aren't going maybe the way you'd, you'd like. and So Kraft deserves credit for that, for getting Belichick and then keeping him and Brady together for for as long as as he did and did you touch on in portions either with him in your conversation because he often talks about how he began he was a fan of the team yeah he's a business guy and he's about making money and being successful like a lot of these owners but i always liked that he was a fan and a fan of this team and i think when something is that deep rooted there's a little bit more to the story when you invest yourself
0: yeah, some of my favorite parts of this book in terms of writing it were the very early chapters where it's a deep dive into who is Robert Kraft and how did he become the owner of this, this team. Those early years uh, when he was an unknown commodity are fascinating and they explain a lot. There's a lot of foreshadowing in those years and, and I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the opening scenes of this book is Robert Kraft way back when he wasn't Robert Kraft and he wasn't even Bob Kraft, he was Bobby Kraft, the the (laughs) college kid. And he walks into a diner at midnight in 1962 with a few college buddies and he spots a beautiful girl in line in front of him. And he's trying to figure out how in the world he can convince this stranger uh, to go on a date with him when she doesn't know him and she's with another guy. And by the next day, they are on a date And they're in a car in the Brandeis parking lot. And not only are they on a date, but she's asking him to marry her. And it's so unthinkable. (laughs) It it seems uh, like completely made up like this Hollywood fictional story. But I opened with that anecdotal story because it tells you a lot about how he got Bill Belichick to come to Foxborough and how he got. Tom Brady to stay in Foxborough for 20 years and just how he even got to buy the team in the first place. So there's so many things about that scene and that, you know, unlikely turn of events that tell you about the football story that's going to come. And I think in terms of, you know, when you talk about Brady and Belichick and how critical they are to the dynasty, because they are, um, you know, it's because Kraft, I think, saw in them something very unique. And this is why I believe this will never be repeated in the NFL. We'll never see this again, not even in New England. It's because I think that Brady and Belichick, and I in the book early on, I compare them to John Lennon and Paul McCartney in the sense that they were the two biggest stars on the stage of the NFL. And Kraft recognized that he basically had John and Paul on his payroll early in the 2000s. And so for Kraft, it became all about how to keep the band together, how to keep these two big stars on the same stage for a long time. And Kraft's a student of history. He's actually got pictures of the Beatles hanging on the wall in his home. And that was something I noticed one of the times I was there interviewing him. I saw these pictures from the early 1960s and I asked him about the Beatles. And that's actually where I got the idea the analogy, because we all know how the Beatles broke up. They broke up too early, and they broke up because they were divided, because John and Paul couldn't get along anymore. And I think the genius of Kraft is figuring out how to keep Belichick and Brady together for probably twice as long as they should have been, certainly twice as long as Joe Montana was with Bill Walsh or Terry Bradshaw was with Chuck Knoll.
1: Well, Jimmy Johnson and Jerry Jones, they, they would have been better off had they stayed together. Uh, talking about keeping something in place here, but ego got in the way. And I think they both admit that years later, how how did Bob Kraft handle his ego with those two where I guess it sounds like you said he would maybe had to play ref or counselor somewhere in between.
0: I actually describe him more as a diplomat in the book uh, and actually got that term from Rupert Murdoch because I, when I interviewed Rupert Murdoch for this book, one of the things he said, which was really fascinating was He said, you know, if, if uh, he calls him Bobcraft, you know, he said, if Bob, (laughs) if Bob had uh, gone into politics instead of sports, he probably would have gone down in American history as one of the country's greatest diplomats. But instead he went into sports and he said his, his greatest achievement clearly has been his diplomatic way of keeping Brady and Belichick together. And here's, I think the, the key to it with Brady, he had a, a familial relationship like a father son that was genuine from the beginning. They, they really did look at each other. Like, you know, he looked at Tom like a fifth son and Tom looked at at Robert like a, you know, a second dad. I mean, Tom has a great relationship with his own father, but, but Robert took on a father figure role for him uh, early on when Tom got to new England. And I think that relationship becomes really critical around 2010 when Tom's been there a decade, he's had a serious knee injury that caused him to lose a season. He's getting to that point in his career where most quarterbacks start to break down. They start to slow down. And he's also at a point where if you look at Bill Belichick's track record for moving on from veteran players, it's about that time. And this is where Kraft really starts to show his genius as a leader and as a manager and as, a, as an owner in, in how he works that relationship with Tom. to to give him the the security and the confidence that he needs to remain in New England. While at the same time, his relationship with Belichick, which is not that as close as it is with Tom, but nonetheless it's just as important and just as strong. It's because it's probably the ultimate business relationship between an owner and a coach. He has given Belichick over the years, a tremendous amount of latitude way more latitude than he gave Bill Parcells or Pete Carroll when they were the head coach. And with that trust, Belichick has always recognized that at the end of the day, while they may see eye to eye on just about everything, when they don't see eye to eye, because occasionally they don't, Belichick recognizes and appreciates that this is, in the end, Robert's team. And that's something Bill told me, In the process of working on this book. And I thought it was a really fascinating thing for Belichick to talk about is just that recognition where he knows how much control and power he's been given by the owner, but he also knows at the end of the day that it is Robert's team. And so if there is a time um, when they may not agree on something, you know, he will defer to the owner.
1: Uh, Jeff Benedict is who we're talking to here on, on CMI, the author of the book, the dynasty, we're talking about the the Patriots Boy, a number of places to go there, including, and you came into this, as you said, open eyes kind of unbiased where others have, have different views of, okay, the diplomat, the owner, uh, the image of the Patriots aside from their success, Jeff, and I'm not sure how you dealt with this in the book, the bending of the rules, the cheating in the eyes of some, and they were caught in some, in in some degree where, where, where did you find that? Because Bill Belichick, you always appreciate somebody pushing the envelope, doing whatever he can is like a good attorney within the rules uh, to, to do what's best for your team, your client. And they went overboard. And I think I think it has. And I've talked to many Don Shula, may he rest in peace and many others that it has tainted the success so that they didn't need to do that. They were that good without these kinds of things. Uh, how, how did you come away uh, with, with that part of, of their dynasty?
0: I appreciate the question, and I basically dove headlong into each of those controversies um, that are part of the – they're important part of this team's history. And it starts, obviously, with Spygate uh, in the opening game of the 2007 season, uh, the first game that Randy Moss, Wes Welker, and Dante Stallworth are in uniform for the Patriots, and we all know what happened that year. That's the year that the Patriots went 16-0, and and they really didn't have a close – with one or two exceptions, they didn't have a close game all season. Uh, they were demolishing teams, but that season begins with a with a black mark, um, where they are caught taping uh, the defensive hand signals from the Jets during that game. Now, anybody who watched that game knows that that taping had absolutely no bearing on the outcome of that game. That game was a complete stampede from the from the beginning. Uh, and the NFL even said in their own findings that the, the taping didn't impact the, the outcome of that game. But that's sort of beside the point. The point is, is that earlier that year, the, the commissioner's office had issued a memo to every team in the NFL about sideline taping of hand signals. And the reason they issued the memo, Chris, is because so many teams were doing it. I mean, the fact that they had to put a memo out is an indication that this was a problem that had risen to the level of requiring the league to basically tell everybody to knock it off. And then the first game of the season, the the Patriots were caught. And I I think it's important to note that they probably wouldn't have been caught had it not been for the Jets head coach, who formerly was Bill Belichick's assistant coach, basically reporting them to security that day. That's what started that whole thing. Um, Doesn't change the fact that they were doing it, but I think it's important to note how they got caught and then they were fined, um, and and they acknowledged it. And I think that it's important to know that you know Robert Kraft was pretty embarrassed and pretty angry when he discovered that this had been going on because he didn't know, uh, the players didn't know, um, but it, it was going on. And Belichick ended up getting the largest fine in the history of the NFL for a coach. Here's what's interesting, Chris. Um, we all know that later they will go to the Super Bowl and. Um, you know, they are on the verge of completing a 19-0 and season. They just have to beat the Giants and for the second time. And on the eve of the Super Bowl, they are accused by the Boston Herald of taping again. Only this time, the accusations are far more serious than the Jets' allegations. This time, they're accused of actually taping back in, in 2002, when they won their first Super Bowl, the Boston Herald accuses them of having a cameraman on the field when the Rams were going through their walkthrough right before the, you know, basically their last practice before the Super Bowl. Those allegations are far more explosive and far more damning to the organization than what, was ele- than what happened with the Jets. And the thing is, um, that story was published. It, it, it was like wildfire and if you ask people today, most people today still believe that happened. And most people are completely unaware that, you know, five months later, the Boston Herald, um, at the risk of being sued and put out of business ran front page banner headlines and back page banner headlines, acknowledging that that actually never happened. And they never saw the tapes because the tapes didn't exist. But the, the problem is, is that story. in in my view, and I think the evidence is really clear on this, had a much bigger impact on the Patriots' reputation than the Jets' story, where they were actually found guilty of doing it. That's the story that's really stuck with them. And I think it has a lot to do with why Deflategate uh, in 2014 mushroomed into what it was. And one of the things that happened between Spygate and Deflategate, in fact, it happened because of Spygate, The National Football League changed its rules for proof of cheating. In other words, they lowered the proof. Back in Spygate, you had to have compelling evidence that that this had happened, and they had compelling evidence. But after Spygate, the league lowered it to a preponderance of evidence, meaning in order to prove that a team cheated or a player, you just had to be more likely than not to think it happened. So 51% more likely, you're guilty. And that was the standard in Deflategate. And the interesting thing, of course, in Deflategate is despite spending over $20 million and and over a year of investigating, the league never did prove that anyone in the Patriots organization actually manipulated the footballs. There was a lot of sort of circumstantial evidence pointing towards a couple of people in the organization, but the, the league really pointed the finger directly at Tom Brady, whom they never proved did anything. Um, but the league's ruling was they just thought it was more likely than not that he must have known about it. First time ever a player was found guilty of doing something on something he might have known. And so I, I did in the book go into depth into into these different uh, chapters in the team's history, because I, I do think it's important. And th- these are also important chapters for the league as well.
1: No, That's interesting how you broke down each one of those, and I realized well, you could go on for hours, and the hours you put in and the people you talked to, it wasn't soon after that, when obviously Brady led the uh, great comeback in the Super Bowl, too. Uh, defeat and defend deflate uh, the, the <laughs> Atlanta Falcons. I, I do want to ask you and gather your information for this. Uh, could you see, and, and the people you talked to, did, uh, we know it's, everything's going to end sometime, right? Like, as you said, uh, the relationship, the dynasty, but could you sense that Brady was going to go somewhere else and, and finish his career? Or did you uh, doing this thing? Yeah. You know what? He'll wrap it up in new England when that, when that time comes, what was your view of that?
0: That's a really good question. And I, I, I'll have to admit that, um, you know, I worked on this for two years. So I was sort of inside the organization or with the organization for two years. And those were Tom Brady's last two years in New England. So obviously this question was front and center the entire time I was there. It was also very ever present in the interviews I did with Tom. And so I, I will tell you that, um, the first or second scene in the book, is a scene where Tom Brady is standing in his luxury box at Gillette stadium, which is the box where his family, uh, Giselle and his children watch the games from on Sundays. Normally Tom would not be in that suite cause he's down on the field, but that's where we did interviews. And there was, there was one time we were in there. It was right before the start of the 2019 season, his last season in new England. It's right before the first game against the Steelers We were in the box. The stadium was empty. And Tom was looking out over an empty Gillette Stadium. And I had asked him about, you know, just to sort of contemplate for a moment, the fact that he'd spent two decades here. And he'd made his career in this building. And and he was sort of ruminating out loud about it. And he asked the question sort of to himself, how did all of this happen? And as we were in that moment, the only question really... That was on the mind of everyone in New England was, was this going to be his last season in New England? And I will tell you that by that time, I was so deep into this story and the writing and everything else that I could, it was hard for me to imagine him right. being somewhere else, right. like being in another uniform. I, I didn't see it.
1: Yeah. And no, I was going to say that many of us did not because people had written about the, their issues and, and not, not of the scale or the investigation part that you have over years. So we kept hearing, oh, this, he's going to retire. He's had enough or this is going on. And so I, I think, well, many, most of us, at least on the outside, or even those that covered the team or the league thought, well, he, you know, this is not going to be like a Joe Montana going, going somewhere else at the end. And, and meanwhile, he's had uh, recent success, especially in in Tampa, I, I do want to talk about access, and you talked about in the beginning how they 're very guarded. H- how much access did you have with Belichick, and was there a uh, since you were kind of an outside guy coming in on this was there a, a wall you had to break down to get his trust to get his time uh, to sit and talk to him <laughs>
0: um, so it, the 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 access and the interviews were different with uh, with Robert Kraft, with Bill Belichick with Tom Brady. As they were with you know Jonathan Kraft or Randy Moss or Teddy Bruschi, I had to just modify and adapt with each of these guys for different reasons. Um, But I'll just break it down this way: in the case of Belichick, um, he asked for all of the answers, all the questions in writing uh, prior to doing the interview, and I actually did that with a lot of people in this book, and I've done that over my career because you tend to get better answers when you give people the questions. Uh, far enough in advance that they have time to contemplate and think about what you want to talk about. Because in fairness to someone like Belichick or even Crafter Brady is, I, I'm doing a very, very deep excavation. I want to ask them detailed questions about things that happened 25 years ago. And so you can't just sit down with someone and then start popping these questions and expect them to, to give you great answers. You got to give them the questions in advance so they can think. So I did that with him. And in his case, I didn't know if I was only going to get one shot with him or multiple. So I gave him all the questions up front. And it was a ridiculous amount of questions. <laughs> and they were very detailed. Okay. And the response I got back through email was, you really want to give coach this many questions? And I said, well, yeah, because I, I just want him to know like where I'm going. Because right. questions are a roadmap to a person about what, where you're going with your narrative. And so he took them and I, I, look, I knew he wasn't going to answer all of them. He would have, it would have taken him three months to answer all those questions, but he ultimately came back and said that he wanted to answer his, his answers in writing as opposed to an oral interview. And I said, that's fine. I mean, I've done that with other people as well. And so that's what we did. And he, uh, he was very good. I mean, the, the questions that he answered were, as I would expect very, um, they were thoughtful. Bill is a very thoughtful guy. I mean, when you see him do these press conferences, which you could view one of two ways, they're hilarious or (laughs) they are uh, infuriating depending on which perspective you take. But this is, this is not off the, him shooting from the hip. Bill is a, he's, he's, you know, arguably the smartest coach of his generation. And so including how he deals with the press, I found that to be, uh, look, his answers for me were fine. They were illuminating. And he was willing to answer questions that I'm I'm pretty confident he's never been asked about before. And I'll tell you, similarly, Randy Moss has a reputation, in fact, a greater reputation than Belichick in terms of not doing interviews. I mean, Bill does a lot of interviews because he has to as a, as a head coach. Randy Moss doesn't have to talk to anybody, and he basically doesn't. And when I approached him, he, he ignored me for, I don't know, six months, eight months. And eventually, um, I don't want to say I was pesty because I, I, I don't like to be a pest at all, but I do follow up with people. And eventually he agreed um, to do a, an interview, but he said he wanted the questions in writing and I gave him. And again, I was expecting an oral interview with him. And then one day out of the blue, I got an, an email and attached to the email was like a digital file. Of him on the sideline at a Monday night football game, uh, which he was, uh, you know, doing the pregame broadcast. And when he wasn't on TV, he stood on the sideline and had one of the ESPN production people ask him my questions as if they were me. And then he recorded his answers and sent them to me as if he were talking directly to me. And I I tell you, it was I've never had anyone else do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting.
0: But it was terrific. I yeah. mean, his, his answers were, as I would expect, they were smart, they were funny, and they were enlightening. And uh, it was just like classic Randy Moss. And so I, I, that's what I mean when I say I just would adapt to whatever. Uh, Robert Kraft, uh, I, I spent a, a lot of time with him, like personal space time where I was either traveling with him. I did a lot of interviews with him on airplanes when he was traveling. I would ride along so I could interview him in the air. Um, because when he's in the air, no one else can get to him. And so uh, that was great times to do interviews. Some of the best interviews I did with him were on his plane. Um, I did interviews with people like Rob Gronkowski or John Bon Jovi, um, people like that in their homes. And I found those interviews to be particularly uh, honest, because when you're in someone's home, you're you're just in a safer setting and you tend to get more personal information. So I just... Look, I went wherever I had to go.
1: Yeah, no. And I, you know, look, Belichick is a detail guy. He likes detailed questions and he'll give you the answers. I agree with you on Randy Moss. I've known him for years. He's a unique personality when he does talk. And I, I always feel like if you can see somebody face to face in these interviews, if you get that opportunity, you're better off. But you have to do what you have to do to to get the information you need. Uh, Jeff, what was the most upsetting thing you were either heard or were told or Disturbing by any player coach when you were putting this book together, anything jump out
0: well i look, I would say at a you know at a very personal level it's um, just appreciating the physicality of the game mm. and the toll it takes on the men who play it and the women who are married to them um, and I really felt it from the perspective of the wives. And that does come out in the book because sure. I interviewed, you know, the wives of numerous players that were part of the dynasty. And, um, you know, I, I think that that's the part probably for me, now it may be different for someone else, but for yeah. me, that's what was really probably the hardest part to, to sort of process and deal with as a journalist, as I was navigating my way through is When you see, you know, uh, the wife of Drew Bledsoe or the wife of Teddy Bruschi or the wife of Tom Brady, when their husbands, um, when their health is really on the line, uh, when you see them in some of the situations you see them in, in this book, there are multiple times in this book where you are in the emergency room with the doctors and the doors are closed and it, things are happening in there that you don't typically see in a book. Um, but I wanted to go to those places because I think that, again, that's part of what it takes to, to do what this organization has done. And um, these players have been through that. And so I, and their wives take that trip with them. And I think people, you know, especially the fans, whether you love this team or hate them, you gotta admire and, and appreciate and then at some point have some empathy, uh, for the, the toll it takes on a family.
1: And there is great admiration for the organization, even those who, who root against them when you become the Yankees of the NFL in their dominant days. Uh, the book is The Dynasty, Jeff Benedict, a New York Times bestselling author. And also we'll have to have you back when we have time to talk about Tiger Woods with Armand Kattan, the book you wrote a few years back. Real quick, uh, just the intimacy, uh, just after, after that book, what was your quick takeaway on Tiger Woods, not the golfer, Tiger Woods the guy?
0: I I came away from Tiger Woods um, with a tremendous amount of uh, respect, appreciation for him as a man, and and I say that because I you know after spending three years chronicling his childhood, the way he was raised, and the microscope that he's been under. I mean, he's been at the tip of the highest pinnacle. And he's had the brightest light on him of probably any athlete in America over the last 20 years, any athlete. And so any human being that can, that can survive that kind of withering spotlight and heat, um, I have respect and I, I, you know, look, he, he's been through a lot of things. And so I just felt like at, at a point writing that biography with Armin, um, We felt like we were, we were going through that and, and it was withering. And I kept saying to myself, I I don't think I could survive this. I don't think I could have held up. And I, and I look around at people I know and go, I don't know if I know if I have any friends who could have held up under this kind of environment. And so it just gave me a lot more appreciation for, you know, who he is and, and what he's accomplished
1: and there's more to come on that on the screen which we'll talk about at a future date anytime there's great athletes or a great success their personal stories uh, we want to know we we love to dig in uh, like old Hollywood, more and more about that. Again, uh, that's the dynasty available on Amazon bookstores everywhere. Jeff Benedict. I appreciate your time. We could have gone on and on. Some interesting stuff from, from your point of view and look forward to the full read and hope people read it if they care about not just the Patriots, but about success and about football. And uh, I enjoyed the conversation, Jeff, keep up the good work.
0: Thank you, Chris. It was a pleasure.
1: And we thank you for listening on CMI to Chris Byers interview here on podcast one. We'll, uh, we'll wait for you next time. Thanks for listening to CMI, the Chris Myers interview.
0: Make sure to subscribe, rate, review, and spread the word. Get new episodes every Wednesday on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify.